Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. This week, Case Closed is supported by another podcast called But That's Another Story. It's a show about how the books we love can change us. Best-selling author Will Schwalbe talks to influential guests about the books that have meant the most to them in their lives. Hear Melinda Gates talk about the book that inspired her to go after her passion. And hear Jodie Foster talk about the book that taught her the value of finding your community. It's a beautiful show full of moving stories. Find But That's Another Story wherever you listen. Welcome to Case Closed. My name is Charlie Spicer, and I'm your true crime guide through this case. We'll be starting with the police press conference and then shift into a search for one key piece of evidence that up until this point has been missing. Keep listening to find out what that piece of evidence is. For now, we begin with DeKalb County District Attorney Robert James and the press conference. James took office three days before Rusty was murdered. One of James's first orders of business is what the Dunwoody Crier, a local newspaper, calls an information blackout. No one outside of the inner circle in the police department has any information. In James's words, this controls the integrity of the investigation. The public, however, has a different take. Any public event with upper police staff becomes an opportunity for reporters and spectators. Emails flood the inboxes of police and politicians. Denny Shorthall, councilman for Dunwoody, got so many emails he had to release a statement reminding the public that a murder investigation was not a public affair event. That makes it that much more significant when, on February 8th, James calls a press conference. James was front and center before the TV cameras with the first official statement in weeks. Since Mr. Snyderman's death in November of last year, the Dunwoody police and my investigators have worked tirelessly to bring justice to the loved ones of Mr. Russell Snyderman and the citizens of DeKalb County, he said. Today, at 9 a.m., the DeKalb County Grand Jury returned a two-count indictment of Hemi Newman. The indictment is currently being filed with the DeKalb County Clerk of Superior Court. Newman was indicted by the grand jury for one count of malice murder and one count of possession of a firearm during a commission of a felony. To the public, this is a shocking turn. Not only is Hemi a surprise suspect, but the tactics for his indictment are likewise unexpected. Indictment by grand jury is not uncommon. For those unaware, a grand jury is a group of individuals who, in secret sessions, decide whether there is probable cause that a crime occurred. The case would be presented and this group, instead of a judge, would decide if they could proceed. Everyone, from the press to Hemi's own legal team, expected a preliminary hearing, a hearing that would be open to the public. This type of proceeding would have answered some of the more pressing questions of motive and evidence, but instead, more secrecy. Now we pick up with Hemi. 
His mother finds two lawyers for him through a family friend. Robert Rubin and Doug Peters have a practice not far from Dunwoody. We start with their first encounter with Hemi. In January, the two attorneys squeezed into a cubicle in the visitor area at the DeKalb County Jail and, through plexiglass, spoke with Hemi Newman. In every case, when you meet someone whose life is in jeopardy and they're looking for someone to put their trust in to save their life, you hope to build a rapport, Rubin said later. We had an immediate rapport with Hemi Newman. It was more of a personal connection. He felt comfortable talking to us. We felt good about him. We liked him. He was a very likable guy. When we first sat in that attorney's booth, the first time we heard Hemi give us his account of what had happened, I'll never forget that. We both knew, Bob and I, that things were not adding up, said Peters. We felt he was out of touch with reality in terms of what he described to us about the offense. Bob and I are not psychiatrists or psychologists, but from the first time we met him, it was not rational how he described it. They needed more information. With little known to the public about Hemi or his alleged motivation, the lawyers sought to fill in the gaps. The day of the grand jury indictment brought another player in the case to the forefront. Since Hemi's arrest, his wife, Ariella Newman, had stayed out of the public eye, all attention focused on Andrea. Now, for the first time, her side of the story would filter out. Ariella, too, had hired an attorney, Esther Panich, a Miami-raised magna cum laude graduate from the University of Miami's law school, with a local civil and criminal practice. Comfortable in front of the microphones, quick with sound bites, and fond of colorful, camera-friendly attire, Panitch would become a constant presence throughout the Snyderman case, and a force to be reckoned with for both the prosecution and the defense attorneys. Andrea Snyderman still was not talking to the media, but her lawyer did release a statement. The murder of my husband, Rusty Snyderman, has been devastating to me and our families. I was thankful and relieved when police made an arrest, but I was shocked to learn that the man charged with the murder was my former boss, a person who we thought was a friend of our family. I have been assured by the DeKalb County District Attorney's Office that Mr. Newman is Rusty's killer and that they will do everything in their power to bring him to justice. My family and I are cooperating in any way we can to assist them in their efforts. We're going to shift now from indictment to evidence. The murder weapon is a significant source of frustration for the police. What kind of gun was used? Where did the gun come from? And, most importantly, would finding the gun definitively prove Hemi's guilt? We start with a nondescript building along a busy highway, a shooting club. The sign says Parnell's firearm in range. Hemi placed a call to this gun range on Halloween in 2010. The police know this from subpoenas of hundreds of pages of cell phone records and from data stored on his laptop and iPad. As the author sums up so well in Crazy For You, detectives who initially thought they were looking for a savvy master criminal instead found in Hemi a man who did virtually nothing to cover his tracks. Let's pick up here. Parnell's Firearms and Range, in quaint Woodstock, Georgia, sells a full array of pistols, long guns, ammunition, scopes, reloading supplies, all sorts of gun accessories. Once you buy a weapon, you can shoot it right away without having to leave the grounds at the indoor shooting range. 
At 6.30 p.m. on November 1, 2010, Hemi walked in. John Turner, a retiree and gun enthusiast, waited on him. Turner handed Hemi the insurance liability forms required to use one of the store's six shooting lanes. While state law frowns on paperwork concerning guns, the same is not true of gun ranges, which must worry about getting sued if somebody gets hurt. Hemi signed a form attesting that he had read and understood the safety rules written above. He also printed his name and added the date and time, and for one dollar purchased a target, a two-foot by four-foot silhouette of a man with rings providing points for accuracy. The closer to the heart, the higher the score. Hemi's form reflected that he used the target lane from 6.35 p.m. to 7.05 p.m. When investigators interviewed Turner, they found that there was no record of the kind of gun Hemi shot. The store keeps track of the manufacturer, model, and caliber of guns loaned for the range, but people who bring their own weapons don't have to fill in that information. The store did, however, have piles of used shell casings going back months. Some of them could have come from the gun Hemi shot at the range and could be compared to the shells found at the murder scene. Investigators filled up 14 five-gallon buckets of brass and hauled it to ballistics man Kelly Fight. Even for an examiner accustomed to tedious work, Fight found this project particularly challenging. He said that there are about 100 casings per pound, with 300 pounds in the buckets, working out to 30,000 casings that went under his microscope. In the end, the effort proved fruitless. Not one matched the murder scene casings. So the murder weapon is still at large. After the break, we meet Detective Mark Potter and an unfamiliar man named Jan De Silva. Keep listening for more. Everyone has a family member who tells the best stories. StoryWorth makes it easy and fun for your loved ones to share their stories by emailing story prompts you never thought to ask. It's a great way to learn about your loved ones and to stay in each other's lives even when geographic distance keeps you far away. At the end of the year, StoryWorth will send you a collection of all the stories bound in a beautiful keepsake book. It's also a great gift for Mother's Day or Father's Day. I'm excited to start using StoryWorth to keep in touch with my cousins, who always have great stories to share whenever I visit them. StoryWorth's creative questions will let them talk about times in their lives I've never thought to ask about, so I'll get to know them in a new way. With Mother's Day and Father's Day coming up, it's the perfect gift for children to give to their parents. Get to know your loved ones in a whole new way with StoryWorth. Visit storyworth.com slash case closed for $20 off when you subscribe. That's storyworth.com slash case closed. Case Closed receives support from the podcast Not Guilty. You have the suspect's fingerprint at the crime scene. You have witnesses testifying that they saw the suspect commit the crime. The suspect has a motive. It's an open-and-shut case. Or is it? Each week, the ParCast original, Not Guilty, examines controversial criminal cases and tries to determine why solid evidence doesn't always lead to a conviction. Learn why the evidence against Casey Anthony in the disappearance of her daughter Kaylee was classified as fantasy forensics, leading her to be acquitted for Kaylee's murder. 
and learn how juror bias plays a role in wrongful convictions, like when the Central Park Five were convicted despite DNA evidence showing that none of the suspects were involved. It's a fascinating show that looks at famous cases in entirely new ways. Search for and subscribe to Not Guilty wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's Not Guilty. Or visit parcast.com slash not guilty to listen now. Let's go to Detective Mark Potter. Potter is helping with the investigation from another district. His main task is looking for clues in Hemi's cell phone records. He finds one in a man named Jan De Silva. De Silva doesn't work at GE and isn't part of the Newman family or their circle of friends. Detective Potter gives De Silva a call, and from that call knows immediately that they have to meet. We go to Buckhead Diner in Atlanta. On February 22, 2011, Potter met Jan De Silva outside the Buckhead Diner. A former petty officer in the Navy, where he was a mechanic, De Silva left the service and now parked cars as a valet. Potter placed on the trunk of a car a photo lineup, six pictures of different men, and asked him if he recognized anybody. Without hesitation, De Silva picked out photo number four, Hemi Newman. The detective asked Silva how he knew the man and how De Silva's phone number came to be in Hemi's cell phone records. I sold him my gun, he said. It was a Bursa Thunder 40, a big and powerful handgun, over seven inches long and weighing nearly two pounds. It shoots 40 caliber bullets, the same kind that killed Rusty Snyderman. De Silva originally obtained the gun on April 8, 2010, from Nick's Gun and Range on Canton Road in Marietta. After six months, however, his interest in firearms was eclipsed by a new passion, skydiving. Needing extra money to pay for his certification to become a skydiving instructor, De Silva listed the Bursa on a gun sales website for $375 in October 2010. He received just one email reply on his Yahoo account. A prospective buyer contacted him and asked if the gun was still available. De Silva said it was, and they arranged a date and time to meet, but De Silva missed the appointment because he had gone skydiving. They set up a second appointment for October 31st, this time at another restaurant where De Silva also worked as a valet. As De Silva waited in the parking lot, he got a call on his cell phone from the man saying he was nearly there. Minutes later, a Honda Odyssey minivan pulled up into the big driveway and came to a stop at the valet hut next to De Silva. After the man introduced himself as Hemi Newman, De Silva then opened a box to show him the Bursa. He explained how the gun worked, gave him a cleaning kit, and two kinds of Winchester bullets, about a hundred solid brass rounds used for target practice, and another fifty hollow points designed for self-protection, the hollow points spreading out in a body upon impact, causing maximum harm. Hemi gave him $380 from a wad of $20 bills, and Jan returned $5 change. Hemi drove off with his gun. De Silva thought this was the end of it, but one evening about two weeks later, Hemi Newman appeared at the Buckhead Diner while De Silva was parking cars. Hemi apparently walked up to him. Hemi asked if De Silva remembered him. De Silva said yes, of course. Hemi reminded him anyway that he was the man who had bought the gun and asked if he could talk to him. 
De Silva reluctantly agreed, wondering how Hemi had found him at this other job. Without being asked, Hemi said the other valets at the Atlanta fish market had directed him to the Buckhead Diner. Hemi went on to tell De Silva that something bad happened with the gun, De Silva later said. De Silva asked if the gun had malfunctioned and worried that Hemi wanted his money back. Hemi wouldn't say what went wrong, only that he had to get rid of the gun. De Silva asked if he had sold it, and Hemi replied that he had disposed of it, where nobody would find it. Then, out of the blue, Hemi said, don't ever have a mistress. De Silva didn't know what to say, so he just said yes. Hemi told a convoluted story about a mistress causing trouble with a family, and that this family knew Hemi had the gun. Somebody had seen him flash it, and members of the family got scared. So Hemi tossed the gun into Lake Lanier, 50 miles northeast of Atlanta. De Silva listened, unsure how to react. Hemi explained that some people might try to contact De Silva, asking if he'd sold Hemi the gun or if he'd ever met him. If that happened, Hemi advised, De Silva should just say that the pair knew each other through mutual friends at Georgia Tech, and that De Silva was trying to get them jobs at GE, where Hemi worked. De Silva agreed to lie for him, but felt uneasy. Hemi offered him a bunch of $20 bills from his pocket, but De Silva said he declined and added that he really needed to get back to work. Hemi walked away. Rattled by the conversation, De Silva, that day, approached an Atlanta police officer. He asked the officer if a person could get in trouble for selling a gun that was later used in a crime. According to De Silva, the officer told him that if the gun had been sold legally, the seller need not be worried. Feeling assured the sale was legal, De Silva said nothing more about it until he was contacted by Potter. Hoping to obtain a shell casing for comparison, the investigator asked De Silva if he had ever fired the weapon in the six months he owned it and kept any of the shells. De Silva said he shot it about 500 times at a range but had not kept the casings. But he did know where he might be able to find one. When De Silva purchased the gun, it came with a shell from a test fire. Excited about his first gun purchase, he gave that shell to his girlfriend, Aurora Juarez, also a gun enthusiast. It was like a gift, he later said, nothing special. At Potter's request, Da Silva called Aurora, who was at home and said she'd talk to him. The detective went to her house, flashed his badge, and asked her if she had kept the shell. I keep everything, she said. Potter took the shell casing to Fight's laboratory in an envelope. Through the stereo microscope, he compared the casing with one found at the crime scene, looking at their respective ejection marks. Fight who had testified 2,700 times in cases for both the defense and prosecution, was prepared to go to court to give his expert opinion that Rusty Snyderman was gunned down with the $375 Bursa Thunder 40 that Hemi Newman bought from Jan De Silva. We have a murder weapon. The matching gun and the testimony of Jan De Silva puts the gun in Hemi's possession. Between the gun and the rental van, detectives are building a soundproof case against Hemi. But this investigation isn't over yet. Though it certainly seems like Hemi killed Rusty over his feelings for Andrea, we can't be sure that's the full story. We know that Hemi was involved in business dealings with Rusty. Could that be motive? Detectives try to fill in the blanks. 
next time on Case Closed. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. This season is based on the book Crazy for You by Michael Fleeman. Get the book or the audiobook using the link in our show notes. The show is produced by Becky Celestina with help from Sarah Grill and Alyssa Martino. We also want to thank Michael Fleeman. Can't wait to hear what really happened to Rusty Snyderman? Hear all of this season right now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash case closed and use code closed to start your free trial. I'm Charlie Spicer. Thanks so much for listening. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.